0: Good morning, church family. What a good day it has been. My name is Liban Abraham, and I get the joy of being the campus pastor at our Missouri City location who are tuning in right now. So we are here together in the service with that Missouri City service. So let's just welcome them this morning. Say, so, hey, Missouri City. Uh, I get to be there every Sunday, and uh, today I get to be here and and speak to Missouri City Campus. It's a great joy to be a part of what God is up to here at Sugar Creek. Now, we are in the middle of an amazing series called 40 Days of Prayer, and I believe you've been impacted by a God that's doing something extraordinary in the life of our children, students, connect groups. Everywhere we look, there are amazing things breaking out because of the power of God that's upon this church. And I said this when we started the series to our campus, that we're not just beginning a sermon series, we're beginning a new season. And that God is ushering our church into a new season of fervency and prayer that shakes heaven and moves earth. And we believe God is up to something amazing. In week one of this series, Pastor Mark talked to us about the importance of praying together in groups. That when we join hands, when we come together, yielding our hearts together in prayer, united or on one cause, God unleashes the power of the Holy Spirit Sometimes I believe that what is worse than atheism and agnosticism is powerless Christianity. Christianity with no power, with no uniqueness. But we are not a powerless people, and we are not a powerless church. We have the Holy Spirit of God at work inside of us. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in our hearts and in our life. And as we yield our life to him in community, God unleashes his power to empower us for greater ministry than ever before. In week two of this series, Pastor Tim Homa talked to us about the obstacles that can get in the way of effective prayer, obstacles like doubt or unconfessed sin or broken relationships that become a lid to our prayers. But when we remove those obstacles, our prayers are effective. It reaches God. We experience a closeness of relationship with him and a power in our prayer. Last week, Pastor Mark talked to us about aligning our passion with the things of God, our desires with the heart of God. And he made this amazing statement that I just so loved. He said this, that when you want what God wants, you can have whatever you want. Isn't that good? When you want what God wants, you can have whatever you want. When your desire is his desire and your passions align with him, then your answers are guaranteed because God makes it happen. Today, I want to talk to you about the reason for our confidence in prayer. The reason for our confidence in prayer. Most likely, if you're over the age of 18, uh, you've gone through a job interview at some point. And if you are older than 18 and you don't know what I'm talking about, your parents have asked me to tell you that it's time to go to some interviews and apply <laughs> for some jobs. Hey, you like that there? I'm helping you out, parents but most likely in a job interview, the person interviewing you at some point asks you this daunting question. Why should we hire you? Why should we hire you? They're saying amongst all the applicants that we have, why do you believe that you are best fit for this job, that we should choose you above everybody else? And hopefully you've anticipated this question and you've formulated an answer to this question, So you may say something like, well, sir or ma'am, I believe that my experience and expertise fits this job so well that I'm well prepared for this role. Or I love the organizational culture of this company or this organization, so I belong here. You might even be extremely enthusiastic and say, well, I was born for this job. I want to work here my entire life. You might go through a series of answers just hoping that at least one of them, arrives in the ears of the person asking you this, and they like the answer you give. In the 60s and 70s, there was a great evangelistic movement called Evangelism Explosion, EE. And the way that this method of evangelism started a gospel conversation was to ask two diagnostic questions. And the second of those two questions was simply this. When God asks you why I should let you into my heaven, what will you say? When God asks you why I should let you into heaven, what will you say? The vast majority of Americans answer that question like this. God should let me into heaven because I'm a good person or because I go to church. That was the majority of our nation's response, because I'm a good person or I go to church. Let me ask you this diagnostic question in week, prayer, in week four of our prayer series. Why should God answer your prayer? Why should God answer your prayer? As you're thinking about that, I want to draw our attention to Luke chapter 18, where Jesus gives two parables about prayer, and the second of which answers the question, why should God answer our prayer? Because I think oftentimes we answer it the same way we would answer the job interview question or how majority of Americans answered the why you go to heaven question. We put our works, ourselves, as a confidence for answered prayers. But in Luke 18, Jesus tells this parable, and this is how the parable goes. It's about a tax collector and a Pharisee who go to the temple to pray. And here's the parable. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humble, and those who humble themselves will be exalted amazing story here. Jesus is speaking to a group of people who feel pretty confident about who they are. See, you might have read this parable at some point, and today when we read it, you anticipated the ending of this story. But the listeners who are hearing Jesus are absolutely shocked at this parable. They're enraged. They're mad about this parable, not just how the parable ends, but how it even begins. A tax collector and a Pharisee should not be in the same story. They shouldn't be in the same room, let alone the temple of God. A Pharisee was the highly esteemed religious leader of that day. He was the standard of God's law. People looked to him for instruction, for guidance. He was the go-to person, the most spiritual, the most knowledgeable, the most righteous person of that day. If he existed today, he would be the senior pastor of a church, the worship leader, the head deacon, the community leader, all of the above because he was just that good. But on the other hand, you have a tax collector. If the Pharisee was the best, the tax collector was the worst. If the Pharisee was the most celebrated, the tax collector was the most despised. If he was the most loved and approved, the tax collector was the most rejected of all. A tax collector here, a Jewish tax collector, is a person who sold themselves out to the Roman government, an evil system that oppressed their own people, the Jewish people. And a tax collector worked off a commission. And so the more tax they collected, the more they got paid, and they get to keep in their pockets. So guess what? A tax collector charged more tax than what was required, an arm and a leg, so that he could make more money out of innocent good people. So if a tax collector came to your home, you knew that you were just about to get robbed in broad daylight. That's what happens with the tax collector. That's why he was so despised. He was literally hated by everyone. He's a crook. He's a thief. So the great shock of this story is that God hears the prayer of a dishonest crook, the tax collector, while he pushes away the prayer of a religious hero, a pious man, the Pharisee. So why does God do that? Why does God hear the tax collector's prayer and not the Pharisees? Well, here are wrong reasons for assuming that God hears our prayer. Wrong reasons to the question of why should God hear our prayer. First of all, God doesn't answer our prayers because we think we're good. God doesn't answer our prayers because we think we are good. Notice what the Pharisee says in verse 9. Then Jesus, I'm sorry, what Jesus says says, In verse 9, Jesus told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. To those who had confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. This group of people felt so good about themselves. I mean, they looked in the mirror and they said, man, you are awesome today. I mean, you know what that feels like when you've got a list of 20 things on your to-do list, and by like 4 o'clock, you've already checked off every single one of those. That must feel amazing, and I say that because I don't know what that feels like. I never get to that point. Some of you are like overachievers. You get to that list, every single one of them. And when you check off that box, man, it's an adrenaline that kicks in. It feels so good, right? Well, these Pharisees, they checked off 613 things every day. They felt really good about how closely they were observing the law and how righteous they were. They were so confident in themselves. And notice what the Pharisee says. He says, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all my income. I fast twice a week. In uh, Jewish law, you were only required to fast once a year for the day of atonement. But this Pharisee is the one-upper. He's an overachiever. He doesn't just fast twice um, or once a year. He fasts twice a week. If he finds a dime on the road, he's given a penny to the temple. He's a good guy. He's the kind of guy you want to hire on a church staff. He's so confident about himself. Many times we do that as well. We take to God the most impressive top ten list of why God, God should hear our prayer. I've done this a few times, God, I've read my Bible every day this week, I feel pretty good. I prayed 20 minutes extra than I promised you. I'm skipping a meal, you know how hard that is for me, I'm skipping a meal, I went on a mission trip, you really need to hear my prayer because I feel good about myself. It's tax season, so you might even say something like, God, I pay my taxes most of the time. I'm pretty good, you should hear my prayers. But God doesn't hear prayers because we think we're good. Notice Isaiah 64, verse 6. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are as nothing. They are filthy rags before God. When we come to God on our best day with the most impressive list, they're like a dirty rag. Compared to the righteousness And the greatness of who God is, our good works are of no value. God doesn't hear prayers because we think we're good. Second of all, God doesn't answer prayers because he owes us something. He doesn't answer prayers because he owes it to us. The tax of the Pharisee here, in verse 11, it says about him that the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. And the imagery is that he goes to the temple with chest held high, so proud, and he goes straight up to the front of the table, to the front of the temple, because he assumes that he's the closest person to God, and he stands by himself and just talks. And the literal wording there, it says that he prays about himself. He prays about himself. This is nothing but a self-congratulatory prayer. Did you know that in those two verses, he lists himself five times? That's pretty hard to do, but he manages to do so. He's saying, God, aren't you glad that I'm on your team? You should be so lucky that I'm part of your team. He goes in assuming an answer. He doesn't plead. He doesn't ask. There's no reverence. There's no humility. There's no brokenness. Chosen assuming because he thinks that God owes it to him. Oftentimes we say things like, God, you owe me my healing. You owe me this job. You owe me that promotion. I've put my time in. I've served. You owe it to me to do this. But can I remind you of Psalm 115, verse 3, when it says, Our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him, he's in heaven. He's great and awesome. He does whatever pleases him. You cannot manipulate God. You cannot force him into a corner. God is not obligated to anything but his word. He doesn't owe us anything. He only stays true to his word. But let me tell you this. In our prayers, we can be free of expectation but full of anticipation. In our prayers, we can be free of expectation but full of anticipation. This is along the lines of what Pastor talked about last week, that in our prayer, we focus on the what, not the how. We don't give God an expectation of when we want him to do it, how we want him to do it. We share the passion of our heart, and we leave it up to him. There's a world of difference between expectation and anticipation. Expectation places our demand on God. But anticipation puts our trust in Him. Expectation demands a product, while anticipation trusts in the person. Expectation is an attitude of entitlement, but anticipation is rather an understanding of character. And when we put our expectations on God, we're saying, you need to do this for me. But when we put your anticipation in him, you're saying, God, I trust who you are. And whatever you do is going to be great because I know your character and I trust who you are. Expectation may be good, but anticipation is way better. My daughter Avery is turning three years old next month. Can't believe it. I want to hit pause on the timetable so that she never becomes a teenager and talks back to me. She's want to stay cute and small forever. Got some hands raised in, raised in here in Sugarland. As we are planning her party, if I were to ask Avery, Avery, what do you want for your birthday and what are your expectations? You know what she'll tell me? I want Fruit Loops and Bubbles. <laughs> That's all she wants. That's her favorite thing. That's all I want. But if she were to come to me and say, Daddy, I don't really need anything but... I just want to spend the day with you and mom. And I just want to be around you. And I know that whatever we do together, it's going to be the best day of my life. I know that you love me, and whatever you plan for me, it's going to be amazing. Man, if she says that to me, I'm throwing her an incredible party. I'm inviting all of you all over. I might even buy her a pony because she's placed her confidence in my love for her, confidence in who I am, not simply what she needs from me. You have a God who is loving, a heavenly Father who is so powerful, so good, and when you come to him with a sense of anticipation, you're not telling him what to do. You're saying, God, whatever you do, I know it's going to be amazing. And every time he answers your prayer, if you come to him with anticipation, he always exceeds your expectations. Every single time, his goodness always exceeds what you can ever imagine. His thoughts are greater. His ways are amazing. Every time he exceeds your expectations. In prayer... What's better than expectation is an anticipation of who he is, not simply what you want him to do for you. Third of all, God doesn't answer prayers because we think we're better than others. He doesn't answer prayer because we think we're good or we think he owes us something or because we think we're better than others. Notice the wording of the Pharisee, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, and adulterers. And he looks over to that, tax collector and says, I mean, I'm really glad I'm not like him. So glad I'm not like that tax collector. I pity that guy. I wish he knew that this was a waste of his time, that he doesn't belong here, that you're not going to hear his prayer. He compares his self-worth, his spiritual worth to someone else's. I'm going to tell you what comparison does. Comparison builds a false sense of godliness resulting in two things, blinding pride and binding guilt. Comparison every time results in blinding pride or binding guilt. When you compare your self-worth, your spiritual worth to somebody else, you are blinded by pride just like this guy is. And this is what pride says. Pride says, well, at least I'm not as bad as them, so I'm good. At least I'm not as bad as them, so I'm good. I'm fine. Or in comparison, it results in binding guilt, a guilt that just binds your heart. And guilt says, I'll never be as good as them, so why try anyway? I'll never know God's word like them. I'll never speak like them. I'll never sing like them. I'll never be a good Christian like them, so why try anyway? Comparison results in these two things, blinding pride or binding guilt. And the Pharisee was so blinded by his own pride that he couldn't see the rottenness in his own heart. Jesus makes it undoubtedly clear in this parable that the confidence of why God should answer our prayer is not in us. The reason God answers your prayer is not because you're good or he owes you something or you feel good about yourself because you've compared who you are to who other people are. That's not a good enough reason to the answers of our prayer. Our confidence is not in who we are on our own. So then why should God answer his, our prayer? Why did Jesus in this story answer the prayer of the tax collector? Well, here are the right reasons for assuming answers. First of all, God answers prayers when we come to him with a humble heart. God answers prayers when we come to him in humility, with a humble heart. So in contrast to the self-absorbing Pharisee, notice the posture of the tax collector. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dare not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. So while the Pharisee went straight up to the front of the church, straight up to the temple, the tax collector is backing up as far as he can against the back wall because he knows that he's not worthy of God. He knows that his sin is too great, his guilt is too deep, and that he's unworthy in the presence of God. He doesn't come with a pretentious thought or an arrogant spirit. He comes with a humility. Humility. That's why Jesus later on says in this parable, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles him or herself will be exalted. We must every time come with this kind of a posture of humility. How do you have a humble heart? First of all, a humble heart means that you have a right view of God. A humble heart means that you have a right view of God. Let me ask you this question. When you speak to God, Who do you imagine on the other side of your prayer? When you pray, who do you imagine on the other side of your prayer? So often I found myself praying as if I was speaking in the thin air. And I prayed so carelessly, so thoughtlessly, so lazy, not realizing that every single time I pray, I am speaking to God. Our hearts can wander from this reality that every time you open your mouth in prayer, you're speaking to God. Even when you pray over a meal. I mean, I know we want to pray as quick as we can just so we can get to that salad. I don't know if you need to pray for your salad or not. But, but you want to just rush through your prayer. But even when you pray over your salad, who are you speaking to? The God of the universe. Even when you utter a simple prayer in your car, who are you speaking to? The God who made everything. When you're on your way out of your home, when you gather with your kids and you just say a quick prayer, who is it that you're speaking to? Not man, but to the creator of the universe. I mean, every time you send an email to your boss, you're so careful to read through the email three times and to make sure that you worded it right. Because you know that the person who you're speaking to and emailing is so great. I'm not saying you need to have perfect words. I need to, I'm saying we need to have a heart that's aware of the reality that when we pray, we're speaking directly to God and no one else. Oftentimes, I forget that. So I go to this passage in Isaiah 40. That reminds me of the greatness, the power, the majesty of the God I'm speaking to every time I pray. Isaiah 40, it's a lengthy passage, but I think we all need to be reminded daily of who our God is. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. That's what they are. You pick the greatest nation in the world. It's a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they are fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, before God, all nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless, less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood that since the earth was founded, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught, and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. That's your God every single day. That's who you're speaking to. Every moment you utter a prayer, no wonder why the angels fall before Him and 24 7, the only thing they can say is, Holy, holy, holy. No wonder why the heavens declare His glory. And every single person who encountered Jesus or had a vision of God lost their confidence. They're lost their strength, and we're prostrating before a holy God because this is who you're speaking to, not thin air, not empty space, not a void, but you have the audience, the attention of this almighty God. A humble heart begins with a right view of who you're speaking to, a right view of God, and second of all, when you have this view, A humble heart means that you have a right view of yourself. You have a right view of yourself. You see, God is enthroned, not your soul. You see his agenda, his greatness as priority, not you, not me. Stacy and I, over the last week and a half, we were in South Africa with our family and just enjoying the beauty of a part of the world that we've never been into. And for a few days, we were out in Kruger National Park, just this vast park the size of New Jersey. And there are no buildings, no structures, so you can look into the naked sky and just see the wonder of God, the beauty, the majesty of God. And one of the nights, and you can see it a lot better than Houston, um, that's for sure, uh, especially if you live on the southeast side. I used to live in League City, man. You go to Pasadena, you can't see anything up there. Um, (laughs) Sorry if you live in Pasadena. Uh, But you can, in that part of the world, just see the constellations, the Milky Way. You can just see the skies lit up with the stars i've never felt so small so insignificant looking directly into the universe that god has made and every week i've done this for a while every time i take the trash out i spend about 10 minutes out in my porch just looking outside reminding myself that as great as i think i am god is greater He's bigger. He's more amazing. That's why Psalm says it like this in Psalm chapter, um, that's why the Psalms say like this chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is mankind? Who am I? Who are we that you are mindful of us, human beings that you care for them? When I see your majesty, the kingdom you put in place, the world you've created, God, how lowly am I that you would actually hear my prayer, that I get to come to you. Oh, my goodness, that's amazing. I mean, you pay thousands of dollars to hear a celebrity sing in the midst of 60,000 people, but you have the direct one-on-one access with God. How mind-blowing is that? Let me tell you this, when you realize who you're speaking to when you pray, the greatest miracle isn't in the answer to your prayer, it's the fact that you can pray. When you realize the magnitude of your God, whose attention you have, whose audience you're in the presence of. The greatest miracle is not in the answers. Those are great. Those are amazing. The greatest miracle is that you can run to him and speak to him. You have an open access into the ear of your God. That's the wonder. That's the miracle that you can speak to God. Don't lose sight of that because that's what drives you to your knees, not just to get answers but to get God to get more of him, to be touched by his power, to sense his presence, to let his love flood through your soul. The greatest miracle is that you can pray. So take advantage of it. Take advantage of it. Come to him with a humble heart, a sense of who he is and a sense of who you are, only in him. So therefore our confidence in prayer when you see this God is that our access to God in prayer is through Jesus alone and no one else. That's the confidence we have. Jesus alone and no one else. My work wasn't good enough, but His work was. My deeds weren't good enough, but his righteousness was. And that's what Hebrews 10, verse 19 onward says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, where is our confidence to enter the most holy place? By the blood of Jesus. That's where our confidence is. That's why God hears our prayers, because of the shed blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. You don't have to stay far any longer. You can draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. That's the access point. Not what you've done, but what Jesus has done. That his body becomes the door through which you enter in. That our confidence is not in us, but it's in him. Our worth is not in our own self, but it's in the finished work of Jesus. No other mediator, no other middleman, but Christ, our Savior, on whose account we approach God. We come to him with a humble heart, confident in him. Second of all, God answers prayers because we are truly broken over our sin and long for a closer relationship with him than ever before. We're broken over our sin. In verse 13, notice what the tax collector said. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh God, be merciful to me for I'm a sinner. Be merciful because I am a sinner. This tax collector comes before God, holds his fist tight to his heart. And most people would hold their hands to reveal that all the evil intent came from their heart. But this guy folds his fist, and he begins to beat his heart repeatedly and rapidly because he knows that he's evil on the inside, that his thoughts are bad, that his deeds are bad, so he beats his heart. An unusual gesture, but a gesture in the first century which meant extreme anguish and extreme sorrow. He was so broken over his heart's condition. The only other time that this phrasing is used in the New Testament or in the whole whole Bible is later on in Luke 23 when a group of people see Jesus crucified and they're wailing over him. They see him breathing his last breath and they beat their chest in extreme anguish, extreme sorrow. That's the reality of this tax collector when he comes to the temple, sees the greatness of God, he is convicted on the inside, he is broken and he wants to be with God, he longs to be with God, and he confesses that he is heartbroken. This is what Isaiah said when he got a glimpse of how high and exalted God was in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. He says, woe to me. Prior to that, he's been declaring woes on everybody else. But when he sees God for himself, he says, woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And, my, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah doesn't just go to the top of the shelf and picks the biggest sin he can imagine to what disqualifies him before God. No, he picks the smallest sin. He goes to the bottom of the shelf and he says, God, just the the words that are coming out of my mouth disqualifies me from being in your presence. You might have had some things that you've shied over, you've looked over. That's not a big deal. That's just a few dollars here and there. That's just a few clicks here and there. That's just a white lie here and there. But Isaiah says the smallest sin in my heart is enough to disqualify me from the presence of God. The tax collector beats his chest. But let me tell you this. One prayer that God hears every single time is a prayer of repentance. No matter where you're at today, no matter who you are, God every single time hears an honest, broken prayer of repentance And he doesn't wait for you to get it right. He doesn't wait for you to put your act together. No, he values right heart over right words. You don't have to memorize the scriptures and repeat it to him. He values the condition of your heart. He's looking for a heart that's broken, that's pliable, a heart of flesh that will move in sensitivity to his voice. God hears us when we come broken over the obstacles, over the sin, in our life, even the smallest of them. And finally, God answers prayers not because of our merit, but because of his mercy. Not because of our merit, but because of his mercy. The cry of this tax collector is, Oh God, be merciful to me. Be merciful. I find it fascinating that this word for mercy that this tax collector uses is a deep meaningful word in the Greek. It's a profound word, only used one other time. See, later on in Luke, the same chapter, when the blind man hears Jesus coming, he cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. It's a generic cry for mercy, but that is not the word for mercy that this tax collector in the story uses. You know, we've got a lot of people that say, man, I can live my own life, but God will have mercy on me. God will take pity on me, I'll do what I want, I'll live my life to the fullest, but God loves me, he's got a purpose for me, he'll one day have mercy on me, and we just sort of throw this generic plea for mercy, God, I know you're good, so you'll have mercy on me, that is not what this tax collector is saying, this word for mercy that this tax collector uses is the same word for mercy that means the mercy seat of Jesus. It's a theological word that means the propitiation of our wrath being removed and God's favor being brought upon us because blood was shed on our behalf. The tax collector is saying, God, have mercy on me. He's crying out, God, will you apply the blood of Jesus on my life? The only way I can come close to you is if you have the mercy of your son, Jesus, on me. It's only if you see me on account of Jesus. It's only if you would apply the mercy of the cross on my life. Not some generic plea for mercy, but a specific plea for the atoning work of Christ. That's why we celebrate this coming weekend, Easter weekend, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, because on the moment that his blood shed and hit the ground, the veil was torn, and the mercy seat of God was satisfied. Because the blood without blemish and sin was spilled on your behalf. And now for the first time in history, mankind have direct access into God's presence. His presence came to us and now we can go to him. I love what Daniel says in chapter 9, verse 18. Give ear our God and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous but because of your great mercy. That's why we have confidence. That's why we are gathered here today, not because of our merit, not because we've been good or we're better than others, not because of our own righteousness, but because of his great mercy. I think for a few weeks in my life, I was praying this prayer, God, be fair to me today. And I quickly realized that's the dumbest prayer I could ever pray. Like that is literally the worst prayer I could ever pray. Because if God was fair to me, I wouldn't be here. If God was fair to you, you wouldn't be here. If God was fair to you, we wouldn't have another breath in our lungs. Let me tell you, we don't want God to be fair toward us. We want him to be merciful toward us. We want him to be kind. We want him to overlook our faults. We want him to be gracious toward us. If God was fair, the tax collector had no hope, the Pharisee would have been justified. You would have had no hope. I would have had no hope. But because he was merciful, we stand justified before him on the account of Christ. So let me tell you, Sugar Creek, The confidence in our prayer is not that we are great, but that God is gracious. It's not that we have an unshakable faith, but God has an unshakable faithfulness. Not that we are worthy, but he is willing. Our confidence is not in us, it's entirely 100% in him. And who we are simply on account of Christ Maybe you're here today on both of our campuses or either of our campuses or you're watching online. I want to ask you, has the mercy of Jesus been applied to you? It is only the blood of Jesus that can open a door wide open between you and God. No other work, no other good deeds, no other comparison will ever do. It's only on the account of Christ that we can even place our prayer on the mercy seat of Jesus. Today I'm inviting you, if you're far from God, today you can receive mercy and your prayers can reach heaven because you are in Christ. Would you bow your head with me? We're about to pray, but I want to remind you even this prayer is a miracle. We're speaking to God. Heavenly Father, great and mighty king before whom angels fall nations crumble thank you that we can pray thank you that we can come close to you we can be near you may we never get used to the fact that you hear us and you answer us that you allow us you find great joy in your children coming to you. Today we confess we have nothing on our own that contributes to the confidence in our prayer, but is entirely in Jesus. God, if there's anyone under the sound of my voice on either campus who needs to come to Christ, may today be the day that they receive mercy. We thank you for grace. We thank you for a new life. May today be the day that they join this church, they come to Christ and be a part of your family. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.